relays a precious truth that the scriptures tell us. He became sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That great exchange that took place on the cross. He bore our sins and he had none of his own and he gave us his righteousness when we had none. What a gift. So I hope that that uh, is on your heart and on your mind this morning as we worship him, that uh, it is only by the grace of God that we are here today. And so as we prepare our hearts and minds for worship, as we do every week, I am going to read to you a verse of scripture, and we'll take a few moments to just silently pray where we're at, asking God to forgive our sins, to prepare our hearts to receive the word, and to uh, just turn our minds towards him. And that verse today is from the book of Psalms. I'm going to read just one verse, Psalm 4. Verses, verse 1 says this, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have, been, you have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful today that the veil was torn and we have access to God through Christ. Lord, that you hear our prayers, and even when we can't pray, the Spirit makes intercession for us. And so, Lord, today there are many in this room, I'm sure, that have burdens, uh, cares, concerns, even sins that they are trying to shoulder in their own strength, Lord, and the weight is crushing them. And I pray that uh, today they would see that... uh, You are the same Jesus that said, Come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Lord, I pray that you would give them that rest, uh, that spiritual rest that they are searching for and seeking for today, that they would cast their burdens upon you, Lord, and that you would shoulder them on their behalf. So, Lord, have your way in this service. I pray that uh, you would increase and I would decrease and that your word would go forth with the power and authority that it possesses and your spirit would draw us uh, as needed, Father. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would turn with me to the book of First Peter, I am going to continue there today. We've been in that book for about uh, two or three months now as we've been going through a series and we're, we're heading into the home stretch, if you will, uh, with, this, with this epistle. I've been taking larger chunks of scripture uh, today. There's no exception to that. I'm going to preach through uh, at least half of chapter 4. And so I invite you to turn to First Peter 4 with me and I'll let you remain seated today on Father's Day I'll give you a gift and you can stay seated as long as you promise to stay awake I'll let you stay in your seat you don't have to stand today but I am going to read verses 1 through 11 today as we begin so Peter writes these words he says since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh arm yourselves with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. 
Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, again, we thank you for your word and the opportunity to hear it preached. And we ask again that your spirit would apply it to our hearts uh, in every situation as it's needed. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of my message today is The Rest of Your Time. I want us to think about that title, The Rest of Your Time. None of us here today know exactly how much time we have. Every day is a gift. And so how we use that time ought to be on the forefront of how we think and how we live. But I want to ask you a couple of questions, as I often do as we begin, just to get your mind thinking about some things. I want to ask you first a hypothetical question. How would you live if God told you exactly how much time you had left? If God were to tell you right now exactly the very second that you would die, how would you live your life? Now, obviously, that's not going to happen, so it's the hypothetical question. But let me ask another question that is, in fact, one that is a reality, and that is this. How do you live knowing that everything you do here in this life will echo into eternity? Based on that fact, how do you live your life? And now let me tie those two questions together. If you knew how long you had left, and the second question, how do you live in light of eternity, are those two things in agreement? Or would your life dramatically change the way that you live it if you knew how much longer that you had? If it would, there's a problem. If it would change dramatically if you knew how long you had, there's a problem with the way that you are living today. And I hope to try to show you some of that as we look at these verses today together. I want to give you a story as we begin. It says that there was a minister waiting in line to have his car filled with gas. So go back to the days of uh, folks pumping the gas for you. Many of you don't remember those days, uh, but some of us do when they used to come out and pump the gas for you. Uh, A minister was waiting in line to have his car filled with gas just before a long holiday weekend. The attendant worked quickly, but there were many cars ahead of him. Finally, the attendant motioned the pastor to come forward to the vacant pump. Reverend, said the young man, I'm so sorry about the delay. It seems as if everyone waits until the last minute to get ready for a long trip. The minister chuckled. I know what you mean. It's the same in my business. And that's true, unfortunately. Many folks are waiting and thinking that they can live their lives any way they want to and then have this deathbed conversion. The problem with that is you don't know when the deathbed may come, and it may catch you unaware. And so as we look at our text today, I want to try to break it down into three different sections, and we'll look at our attitudes towards things. So I would label the first three verses as our attitude towards sin. As believers, Peter is addressing believers, what ought to be our attitude toward sin? You notice that at least in the ESV translation, it starts out with the word since. A better word there would probably be one of my favorites, therefore. 
because therefore always points us back to something. So Peter is making yet another point, but he is drawing off of something he previously said. And in this case, it is verse 18 of chapter 3, which says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. Exactly what we talked about in that song that we sang, His Robes for Mine. Christ suffered in the flesh, the righteous for the unrighteous. So now Peter is going to take that thought and say, therefore, based on that truth that Christ died for us, Christ suffered in the flesh, we ought to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. The Apostle Paul said something like that to the church in Philippi when he said, have this mind in you which is also in Christ. So our thinking largely determines the way that we will act. We understand that. Our thoughts become our actions. That's why the Bible tells us to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by what? The renewing of our minds. Over and over and over again, the scriptures tell us that as we are new creatures in Christ, our way of thinking is going to have to catch up, if you will, with the attitude of the Spirit inside of us. Our thoughts generally still pull towards the world and towards the flesh. And so the battlefield is always in the mind and the way that we think. Uh, the Apostle Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5. He says, The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We are bombarded daily with thoughts. We have a conversation with ourselves all day long internally. And the bad thing about that conversation is, and the bad thing about those thoughts are, and I've said this many times before, the overwhelming majority of those things are negative. They are negative thoughts, they are negative reactions, and they're not grounded in biblical truth. We are who God says we are, not what we think of ourselves, and certainly not what someone else thinks of us. And so we need to ground our very essence in the Word of God. And so Peter is telling us to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. And in this context, that is talking about suffering. We've spent a lot of time, as we went through this letter, talking about suffering because Peter has a lot to say about it. And for many of us, we've never truly experienced suffering on the level that other brothers and sisters in foreign lands have. And I'm thankful for that. I don't think any of us are praying for suffering to be what we get for Father's Day. But suffering is a reality for the believer. And you may suffer on different levels, but suffering will, in fact, come to you. I want to read to you what a couple of commentators said about this verse. I think they bring it out very well. The first is a guy named John Phillips. You may or may not be familiar with him. He wrote uh, a large New Testament commentary. He says this, Peter does not use the Greek word for light armor here, but the word for heavy armor. He's saying suit up. Don't just grab your shield and run out the door. Suit up. Put everything on that you can. Phillips goes on to say, We need all of the protection we can get to prepare ourselves for the battles ahead. God does not promise to carry us to the skies on flowery beds of ease. God does not hand out colorful brochures offering good health, prosperity, wide popularity, and a long life to those who accept Christ. Those who array themselves in such flimsy robes are in for a shock. 
That is very true. Let me give you another quote from someone that you may be more familiar with, Charles Swindoll. Uh, He says this, Peter's point is clear. Christ didn't send us into the world as vacationers on a self-guided tour of a playground, but as soldiers on a tour of duty in a battlefield. We're not called to kick back, relax, take in the scenery, and wait for our guide to take us home. We're engaged in a fierce conflict on foreign soil. We need to arm ourselves with spiritual armor to withstand the temptations of this world. Peter says, if you have been conformed to Christ's death and resurrection, the power of sin has been broken because the old person you used to be has died with Christ and you are now free to live with Christ. Amen Amen to that. Absolutely. And so when we look at verse 1, therefore, because of what was said on verse 18, Christ suffered in the flesh. Our minds ought to be armed put on the armor every day so that we think with the same mind that Christ has. And then he says something that that has troubled many people uh, when when they read this verse. He says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, we're in church today, so let's, we want to be honest in church, amen? And so we're going to be honest today. Has anyone in this room, don't be ashamed, has anyone in this room ceased from sin? You are completely sin-free. Never have a problem with it anymore. If you would, I'm going to sit down and would you please come up and tell us your secret. Because I certainly haven't gotten to that point yet, and I'm pretty sure that you haven't either. So what on earth is Peter saying here? If we suffer, we have ceased from sin. That's not my experience. That's not your experience. So what is he trying to say? It's the same thing in a nutshell that the Apostle Paul was trying to say in Romans 6, and you don't have to go there. But the idea is this, when Christ died on the cross for our sins, when he shed his blood and by faith we receive that sacrifice in our place, how many of our sins are forgiven? All of them, right? If, if that one sacrifice, the Bible says, was not sufficient, then we are still in our trespasses and sins. Because Christ is not coming back to die again. He's not coming back to offer yet another sacrifice. That one-time payment was sufficient for all people of all time. But here's the thing that we don't often think about. We rejoice that Christ's sacrifice forgives our sin. But do you understand that that sacrifice not only forgives the penalty of sin, but it breaks the power of sin? Our experience is that temptations come and there are times when we fall. But we do not have to give in to the power of sin anymore. Christ's sacrifice and the spirit within us has broken the bondage that we were in. You do understand that, right? We sin still when we choose to disregard the scriptures and disobey the spirit and go into temptation of our own will and accord. But that is a choice that we make. When we were lost, sin had dominion over us. Not only did we sin, we loved it. We looked for opportunities to partake in it. As a believer, that should have changed the day you met Christ. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Not a sinless creature, but a new creature. Your desires will change. Your affections will change the things that you want to do, the places you want to go, the way you speak and the way you think are constantly being changed, sanctified, conformed to the image of Christ. That is the experience of the believer. Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but I asked you if anybody had 
cease from sin and you said no. But as a believer, you should be able to say, Pastor Chris, yes, I have experienced a change in my life. I'm not perfect, but my desires have changed. The things that I say and do have changed and, and Christ is working in me and there is evidence of that. That should be the believer's testimony. If you can't honestly say that today, then my prayer is that you would examine yourself to see if you're truly saved, to see if you truly know Christ. Not, again, I'm not standing up here saying that you have to reach a state where you never sin. But I'm saying, what is your response when you sin? How do you react to those times? That will be largely telling of whether or not you've experienced the new birth or not. That, I believe, is what Peter is saying. When we suffer in the flesh, when we suffer as Christ says, when we are joined to him, we cease from sin in the sense that its power over us is broken. We no longer are under the dominion and power that it once had for us. Then he goes on in verse 2 to say, so as to live the rest of our time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. This is a verse that I think goes really well with our Sunday school lesson and one that we ought to really stop and consider uh, for a moment. Because we live in a world, and I'm going to speak especially to some of the younger folks in our audience today, but it certainly applies to all of us. You are, young folks especially, you are under immense pressure to be liked, to be popular, to fit in. It is, it is a hostile world today for young kids. I get that. I, I've seen the bullying. We've all heard stories of suicide because somebody was different. They weren't like the crowd thought they ought to be. And as a result, they were bullied to the point where they ultimately and tragically took their life. And so for you young people, I understand, at least on the surface level, I've not ever experienced life like you are as a child or a young adult. But I get it. I, I myself struggle at times to be a people pleaser. But as a Christian, you have got to make a decision. And I pray that today you will make that decision. You are either going to please God or please man. You can't do both. The prophet Amos said, can two walk together except they be agreed? You can't have one hand with Christ and one hand with the world. They're going to pull in opposite directions and you're going to have to let go of one of the hands. And so I'm telling you that you have got to decide that you don't care what the world says about you, that you don't care what's popular with the world. If you have to stand alone, you'll stand alone because you're never alone when you have Christ. And hopefully you realize that there is a church, which is another reason why the church is so important, that will stand with you. So you're not alone when you take that stand. But, but Peter is saying that we can't live any longer after the passions of our flesh. There's a break. When you came to Christ, the old man died and there's a new creature. And that means that the old affections and the old, some of the old friends, they're no longer with you. And you've got to be okay with that. And then he goes on in verse 3 and says, For the time is past to suffice doing the things that the Gentiles do. And then he lists several things. Again, reaffirming the point that when you come to Jesus, there's got to be a change, guys. Christ called it a new birth, right? You don't come to Jesus, you don't come up here to the altar and make a profession of faith and leave, and there's nothing different about you. If that is the case, then I'm imploring you to be serious today and ask yourself, if I really met Jesus, why am I no different? 
if I really met Jesus, why do I really care less if I live for him? If I really met Jesus, where is the fruit in my life? Only you can answer that question. I'm not your judge, but he is. And he knows the truth, and I believe he'll show you the truth if you ask him. And that truth will set you free. And so we think about the, the relationship to sin in our lives, number one. And it should be broken, the power should be broken, and we should live different lives. But now look at verses 4 through 6, and I want us to think about the next attitude that we ought to have. And that is the attitude towards lost people. So look at what he says in verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. It's basically saying this. When you come to Christ, the old crowd that you used to hang out with, when they want to go out and do the things that you all used to do together and you say, I don't do that anymore, they ought to be shocked. They ought to be shocked. The sad thing is a lot of people are shocked when they find out you're a Christian. You're, you're a believer? Really? That's not what this verse is saying. It shouldn't shock people when they find out you're a Christian. It should shock lost people to see the change in your life. That's what the verse is saying. It ought to make us strangers is literally what that word means. We ought to be strangers. The people that we used to hang out with, we probably won't have anything in common with them anymore if we're truly living for the Lord. That doesn't listen. And again, don't, don't take this the wrong way. I am not saying that you should only hang out with believers. If you have friends that are lost, continue to be friends with them. How will they ever hear the gospel if you just shun yourself from all unbelievers and we just all hang out together in our little Christian cliques? But you're not going to partake in the things that the lost people are partaking in. At least you shouldn't be, right? You can keep the friendships, but the change in you will be that you live differently before them. And the Bible says they will see your good works and glorify the Father which is in heaven. You've got to let your light shine. You've got to let your light shine. You don't compromise. You don't give in. I like how the, uh, the New American Standard version brings it out. And I think the King James does as well. It says that you no longer run with them. Let me ask you a question. When you're not in church, when you're not trying to be somebody you're not, who do you run with? What do you run to? Only you can answer that question. But it's a sad reality that many people walk through these doors and pretend to be somebody they're not for an hour and then go out there and run with the world all week. And I'm not picking on younger folks today, but again, I know the pressure on you to conform to certain patterns of life. And that is why I thank God for Vincent and Alyssa leading our youth. And I encourage you parents and grandparents to bring your kids to church and get them involved in youth group. And thank you for Rosie and, and on all those that teach. I, I don't want to miss anybody, so I probably shouldn't even try to name names. But everybody that volunteers that teaches kids and youth, thank you because you're investing in those kids. And parents take advantage of that. Grandparents take advantage of that. Bring your kids. They need one another. They can have a group here where they can encourage one another in the Lord. Or you can say, well, we'll just let them run. Let them, they don't want to come to church. I'm not going to fight with them. I'm not going to make them come. They'll find a crowd to run with. And you won't like the results. I've sat many a time in an office with distraught parents saying, I don't know where I went wrong. I tried my best. 
and now they want nothing to do with church. And, and I, you don't want to be harsh in those moments, but you know, they never brought their kids to church. They didn't get them involved in any activities. They were always too busy. There was football on Sunday. There was dance on Wednesday, and the kids never made it to church. They did all the things in the world, and then parents are shocked when the kids turn to the world. What did you expect? I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm just trying to be realistic. And so we need to think about who are we running with, what example are we setting, and what are we letting our kids do? Right? There's nothing wrong with football. There's nothing wrong with dance. I'm not one that says you've got to be in church every time the doors are open or I'm going to come knock on your door and check and find out why you weren't at church. I know things come up. I know kids have to be involved in extracurricular stuff. I get it. But every once in a while, it'd be nice if we turned down the worldly stuff to say, nope, we've got to go to church today. You know, Every once in a while, we ought to say, Coach, I'm sorry, we've missed two weeks of church. I'm not missing a third week. My son won't be at, my son and my daughter won't be at ball today. I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. I think we've got to set an example at some point for them. So the attitude towards the lost is we don't live like they did, and it ought to shock them a little bit. It ought to be something that catches them off guard. And then look at verse 5. He says, because they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. There's going to be a day of judgment. I'm going to ask the guys in the sound booth to put up a little picture on the screen. I want to show you this little cute, cuddly creature uh, on the screen. Isn't he cute? That little guy is called an ermine. And the interesting thing about that little guy is that uh, his coat is very valuable. He's pure white, as you can see, almost blending in with the snow. But he... he, he keeps himself spotless all the time, always trying to stay clean. And so, obviously, if you put out a trap to catch that little guy, it's going to get blood and dirt and all kinds of stuff on it. So trappers have figured out a way to catch this little guy without ruining the coat, without getting it dirty. You know what they do? They smear dirt and grime and anything they can over the entrance to his little burrow. And when he comes back... He's so concerned about not getting dirty, they'll just sit there right outside of that hole and get caught. He doesn't want to get dirty. What if we lived that way? What if that was our attitude towards sin? That we were so concerned about our holiness before God that we were willing to do anything to make sure we didn't get ourselves spotted and stained with sin in the world. I think that's a good example of how we ought to try to live. Because uh, Peter says that there's going to be a day of judgment. A day of judgment is coming for those without Christ. And so that is why we preach the gospel, he says. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. It is the gospel that is going to turn people's hearts away from sin to the world. We're not standing up here today. I'm not standing up here today telling you that the gospel is live a better life. You can't live a good enough life to be acceptable to God. You can't keep the law and be justified. The scriptures tell us that. There are many people today that are good, moral people that are not followers of Christ. You can live a very productive, healthy life without Christ, but you will die and stand in judgment for your sins. And only the blood of Jesus can atone for that. That's the gospel. Not that we are good in and of ourselves, but that we are lost and we need a Savior, and Christ is that one. He is the one that loves you and died for you. 
And so when we think about that, and we think about that judgment, the book of Revelation talks about this final judgment, and I'm not going to read all those verses from chapter 20 for sake of time, but it talks about a great white throne judgment. It talks about the fact that one day all of those without Christ will stand and be judged. And the last verse says that this is the second death, the lake of fire, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That is the reality, friends. That is the seriousness of what we are talking about today. That you can't just continue to live without Jesus and expect to stand before God at, after your death and enter into glory with Him. You've got to make a decision today. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Harden not your hearts. What will you do with Christ? What have you done with Christ? And then once you've received Him, how do you live out your life? Not to earn salvation, but because you're saved. You need to consider those things. How much time do you have left? We don't know. Make the most of our days. And finally, let's look at verses 8 to 11 and we'll close. Our attitude towards other believers. This is often where the church falls short the most, I think. Uh, oftentimes, churches strive to live biblical lives. Christians strive to be biblically sound. We strive to reach out to the lost. We want to share the gospel. We want to tell them about Christ. Then we come inside of here with each other. And we often struggle with one another. Maybe it's because we know each other a little bit better. Maybe it's because I don't know what it is. But I think we struggle sometimes in our attitude towards other believers. Look what he says in verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, or the King James says fervently. It's not just a passing kind of love. It's not just a, a philos, a brotherly love. It's this agape love, this godly love that has no boundaries, that has no limits. That's a difficult kind of love sometimes because we can all be unlovable. Amen? We all have our moments. Yes, we do. And in those times, we need to remember that the grace of difficult people love them nonetheless. Love our enemies. Over and over, Christ doesn't exclude us from that. We have to show love towards all because love covers a multitude, he says, of sin. Then he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. What does that mean? It means that when we look around in any church, there are er certain folks that have needs. And we ought to try our best to meet one another's needs if we can. We ought to try to meet one another's needs. Listen, this might shock you. It's not just the pastor and the deacon's job to visit people and check on them when they're sick. I didn't think I'd get many amens. But the reality is, as believers... In a local church, we cannot listen. Does this sound silly? If we say, Shane, I love you with all my heart. And then when Shane goes through a problem for six months, I never call him, never check on him, never show any concern. What did that statement mean? Nothing. It was just words. It's not enough to just say, love you, Brother Jeff. See you next week. Brother Jeff sends me text almost daily. Ask me how I'm doing, and I try to send him stuff. I try to send all of you stuff from time to time if you're on my heart. 
We, and, I, and that's not to brag. We ought to all be doing that. We ought to be doing that. If we really love each other, we all need to pick me up. Sometimes that little verse of Scripture, Monica was telling me the other day, um, that she got a random phone call from somebody she didn't even know and they didn't want to sell anything they didn't want to hassle her they didn't say this is duke energy or we're calling about your car warranty we all get those things this was somebody who just called and read some scripture and that was it and it blessed her so much that was that lady's ministry she didn't know monica but she was just picking up the phone calling random numbers and just reading some scripture what a ministry don't ever think you can't do anything for the lord we used to sing that old hymn little as much when god is in it right that's the truth Jesus said if you give somebody a cup of cold water in his name that you won't lose your reward. There's nothing small that you can do for Christ and his kingdom. But we ought to all be involved in some way if we love Jesus and meeting each other's needs is a great way of doing that. Maybe somebody's having a bad week. Invite them to lunch. Better yet, have them come over to the house and sit with them. I don't know what it looks like for you. God will show you an opportunity. He'll give, if you pray for an open door, he'll put one in front of you. Take advantage of it. That's what we should do. He says in verse 10, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. I hope all, did you all get a bulletin today? Look in there real quick. In that bulletin is a little sheet of paper, and it, or a half sheet of paper, I should say. And at the top it says a broken key. You see that? Do you notice one of the letters is missing? Now, we were, we were kidding with some of the folks before church that you can still read that. You know, you can make it out, and, and, and you know what it says. But it, it's definitely not written as it ought to be, is it? It's definitely not complete. I want you to keep that paper. Keep it somewhere where you see it, hang it on your fridge, put it on your car somewhere, and just think about that from time to time. Because a lot of times we think, well, it doesn't really matter if, if I don't come to church this week, it doesn't really matter if I, if I don't get them. Somebody else will do it. Somebody else can do that. It's just like the illustration on that paper. That one key missing makes a difference. When you're not involved, nobody can replace you. Listen, the Bible says we are all made in the image of God. But we are all diverse. We're all different. Nobody in this room is the same. God has made you unique. And he's gifted you in unique ways. And there is something that you can do that God wants you to do that nobody else in the church can do, nor should they have to do. If Caleb is gifted to be up here leading worship, and we couldn't get anybody to work in the sound room, and I said, Caleb, I'm going to have to have you stop and go back there. This ministry that he's called to do would suffer because he has to go back there and do something that, that someone else is really gifted to do. And it's just like that paper. We still get by, but it doesn't work how it ought to. And that's the reality. Peter says, as each has received a gift, use it. Use it. If you are a believer, you have a gift. If you don't know what it is, we want to help you. That's one of the things that I try to do and, and we try to do as a church is to give you spiritual gift surveys and help you find your gift. But you have a gift. Use it. If you're not using it, this might shock you as well. You are living in sin. If, listen, I can show you over and over again in the scriptures where it talks about the fact that there's a whole parable Jesus gives about giving folks talents and the one guy buries it in the ground because he doesn't think 
that the master would be pleased if he lost it, so he just buries it in the ground and he gives it back. Was the master pleased with him? Of course not. You are given a gift to use for the edification and uplifting of the church. And if you don't use it, you're basically saying, God, thanks, I don't want this. Somebody else will do it. Go talk to them. You should not want to live that way, church. I know it's scary to step out of your comfort zone. We, we talked about last week, we got this keyboard up here, and we're praying for somebody to come along and play that. And I know that there's somebody in this church that can play that. I know there is. I know that there's somebody that's gifted, and the only reason you're not is because you're afraid. Listen, I'm going to tell you something. Just between us. I'm afraid to stand up here and talk in front of people. This, is, this, this doing this, is way, way out of my comfort zone. I, I, listen, I've done it long enough now, and I've, I've tried to trust and walk in faith to where I can do it, and it's, and it's in the strength of the Lord and not in my own strength. This is not me. I don't speak in front of people, never was comfortable with it, and so if you want to serve God, if he's called you to do something, you're going to have to get uncomfortable. He doesn't, it doesn't say, as each has received a gift, use it unless you're nervous, unless you're scared, then don't worry about it. He says, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. And here's the ultimate point that we'll close with. Whoever speaks, speak as the oracle of God. Whoever serves in the strength of God, why? In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. When you got saved, the Bible says you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. The whole point of our lives, guys, is to bring glory to God. To bring glory to God. He saved you, not just so that one of these days you can fly off to glory. That's wonderful that that's the reality. But he saved you to be a part of his kingdom work now. He placed you in the church to serve him now. There are so many needs. And don't for a minute believe the lie that God doesn't want to use you to meet some of those needs. If you find your gift and employ your gift, you will bring glory to God you will point others to Jesus, and I'm telling you that you will make an impact for the kingdom. Not because you are great, but because God is great. Amen. And he's going to work through you. Trust me on that. Based on the authority of the word of God, I guarantee you that that will be the reality. But many of you have never experienced that because you're still holding back in fear from taking that first step. Peter never would have walked on the water if he didn't step out of the boat, would he? No. He had to step out of the boat. And here's the reality as we close. I'm going to invite the praise team to come. Think about what we started with at the beginning of this message. How much time do we have? Nobody knows. But what we do know is this. The Lord could return at any moment. The Lord could come back before we give this invitation. Are we ready? Someone said that in each day there's 24 hours that's 1,440 minutes and 86,400 seconds. And every one of them is a precious gift from God. He says, time is something we feel we never have enough of, yet we give it away so easily. Someone once said, time is free, but it's priceless. You can't own it, but you can use it. You can't keep it, but you can spend it. Once you've lost it, you can never get it back. How will we live our lives, church, in light of the fact that we don't know how much time we have left, we don't know if the Lord may return any moment, how then shall we live? Only you can answer that. But it's my prayer that you will live as a new creature in Christ, 
that you will live with an attitude that not only is different from the world, but that points them to Jesus, and that within this church, among other believers, you will love the brethren, that you will care for the brethren, and that you will show that by the service and the use of your gifts each and every day to build this church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your word, and we thank you for saving us to serve. So, Lord, help us now to live our lives in a way that's pleasing to you. And, Lord, help us as we give this invitation that you would draw those to repentance, to faith, to surrender. Whatever the need, Lord, work in their hearts, and we'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand and as we sing, if you need to come, would you come?